0: Morning, church. Now, it's true for me, it's true for you that all of us live among people, work among people, who have very great differences in worldviews from us. When Charlotte and I moved into the neighborhood, the first neighbor who came to greet us, uh, a man who's a friend of ours and we're pursuing a relationship with, if we were to talk really deeply about who God is, about what human beings are, about what's right and wrong, we would have entirely different answers to just about all of those questions. As you go to work, you brush shoulders with people with the same sort of situation. We're about to have holiday gatherings, right, Christmas gatherings coming up where you'll be around family members you've known for a long time, and you'll have a similar situation. So One question I want to ask this morning is, how do we as Christians live in a world where our opinions, values, and beliefs can differ so much from our neighbors, family, and friends who we live among? How do we navigate that situation? How do we work through conflict and disagreement? What do we disagree about? How do we handle the fact that we're oftentimes so different from people that we're close to day in and day out? As we return to the life of Abraham... This section of his life, this story, is going to teach us another lesson, and we're going to try to answer these questions as we walk with him and see how he lives and how he acts in relationship to one of his neighbors. Now, just to catch us up to context where we're at right now, Abraham and Sarah have finally had Isaac. They finally had the child of promise, and they're adjusting to new life with their new baby. And as they're adjusting to new life with their new baby, as almost 100-year-olds, someone from the past shows up. His name is Abimelech. And they're going to have another interaction with him. And if you remember Abimelech from a couple chapters ago, last time they interacted with him, things did not go well. Things did not go smoothly. Right? So Abraham lied about Sarah being his wife because he was scared Abimelech was going to kill him and take her for his wife. And then um, He ended up taking her into his harem and then God showed up and there's all kinds of judgments, all kinds of um, fear and confusion and so there's a lot of conflict and a lot of awkwardness in their relationship so far. And now they're going to have to meet up again and talk through some more conflict. That's basically where we're at right now in our story. So let's hop in together this morning and see what God has to say to us. Verse 22. At that time... Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. Okay. So last time, Abimelech and Abraham met up. Abraham was the one who was afraid. Now the role is reversed. Abimelech is showing up to Abraham and he's afraid. And he's asking for peace. So what is going on here? Right, so Abraham's household over the years probably continues to grow and to prosper. He's finally had an heir. He's becoming maybe something like a little nation in this bigger nation. And you can imagine that if you're king of and you have a nation to protect on your own and there's enemies on your borders, if there's another nation that's growing stronger within your nation, you're going to want to make sure that you're at peace with them. Because when you're weak, right, they could attack you. If other people from other nations attack you, if they turn on you at that point, that would not be good. And so it looks like he's seeking out Abraham and he's looking for peace. And Abraham, he probably has a reputation as being some sort of mighty warrior, because if you remember earlier in the story, last time he went to battle, right, he only took 300 men with him, and he defeated five other kings. And so Abimelech is probably like, we've got to make sure that my relationship with Abraham is going to go well. And so he shows up, and he says, hey, Abraham, I've dealt kindly with you. We've resolved our last conflict. Can we please make peace? Now, I love the first thing. That Abimelech says to Abraham when he talks to him. Do you see that? And take a look right here. The first thing Abimelech says to Abraham is, "God is with you." It's awesome. This pagan king, as he lives alongside Abraham, can recognize that God is with Abraham as Abraham lives and walks in the world, God's power and presence is with him and ministering through him. Whatever it is about the way he lives, about the faithfulness he treats his family and other people around him, about the way the blessing of God is upon him, Abimelech, his pagan neighbor, can look at his life and recognize that there's something different about it. That's the starting point for the story and this, how this relationship unfolds is that Abimelech recognized that there's something different about Abraham. And as the story of the Bible unfolds from cover to cover, I want us all to recognize that that should always be the case for God's people. That other people who look out at our lives from the outside to us should be able to recognize that our God is with us. Right, we have a list of core values at our church. Does anyone remember the first one? Be with the Father. Before we do anything different as a community than the world, the very first thing that's supposed to be different about us is that we spend time in the presence of God. It's the very first thing that's supposed to be different about us. Because when we spend time in the presence of God, He changes us and makes us into new people that we could never become on our own. So that when other people interact with us, they can sense the God that we worship. I don't know if you guys remember Acts chapter 4, when the apostles are beginning to minister in Jerusalem, and they're confronting the leaders at Jerusalem, and uh, they look at them, and they could just tell that they had been with Jesus. And man, I just want that for you. I want that for me, that as we go throughout the world, as we go throughout our lives, the most distinct thing about us, more than anything else, would be that the power and presence of God is with us, because we spend time with him. And so I just want to encourage you, I want to encourage all of us to grow in spending time with God. It can be difficult this time of year, right? It can be difficult with everything going on. It can be difficult with our jobs, with our relationships, with our families. And yet the very first thing about following Jesus is being with Jesus. And there won't be anything special about your life. There won't be anything remarkable about your life. There won't be power in your life unless you spend time with your God. And so this is just a fresh reminder for me and for all of us this morning that this is the first step of our walk with Jesus, is being with God. Now Abraham, or sorry, Abimelech senses God's hand on Abraham, and he wants peace. So he comes up to him and asks Abraham for peace. And what does Abraham say? He says, I'll swear it. I'll give you peace. Which before, right? Before, when pagan kings gave Abraham's offers, there was a king of Sodom who offered Abraham unrighteous wealth. Did Abraham take it or refuse it? He refused it. Abraham is not afraid to refuse offers from other kings and other people when it will interfere with his worship of God. But when an offer comes along that will not interfere with his worship of God, when an offer comes along that will allow him to remain loyal to the God who rescued him and he follows and will only lead to peace with his neighbors, he takes it. And I think it's a good image and picture for us as we walk through this world as Christians that we should never compromise with the fallen values of our cities. We should never compromise our allegiance to someone else besides God. But whenever we have a chance to live beside a neighbor in peace, we should always take it. The Apostle Paul says, live at peace with everyone as far as it defends on you. So as, as even though we see the world differently than other people, we are never looking for opportunities to have conflict with them. We're always looking to live at peace with everyone we can, everyone the Lord gives us the opportunity with. It's what's it's what's distinct about a Christian, actually. is that we're not out to try to compete with people and claim victory in this life as much as we're out to serve and bless people and love them. And so what should feel different about Christians is the way that we pursue peace with neighbors, pursue peace and love towards other people, especially those who think most differently from us. Like, as we live in our culture, are people good at loving and caring for people who think differently than them right now? Like, is that a strength of our culture? And yet, that is a virtue and a calling that our God has upon us. And Abraham demonstrates it here in his relationship with this man where he takes this opportunity for peace. All right, let's keep going. Let's see what happens next as the story continues to progress. And how this interaction and this relationship moves forward. Verse 25, here's the conflict. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. So they they made a peace agreement. Doesn't sound like it took very long for someone to break it. Whether Abimelech knew about it or not, his servants come and they take this well from Abraham. So Abimelech has some sort of fear of a conflict of relationship with Abraham. It doesn't seem like he has love for Abraham. And whether he knew about it or not, his kingdom doesn't have a culture of respecting and loving other people. And so when the opportunity comes, his servants go out and they seize this well from Abraham. Right? If we remember back a few what kind of kingdom and king he is like, when Abraham and his wife Sarah go to sojourn in his land, I guess this is just something people did back then. He just takes Sarah into his harem like... That's just what I can do and make her one of my many wives. And so this man in this kingdom seemed to have this greedy culture of just seizing and taking whatever they want, whenever they want. And so Abraham has this situation where Abimelech's servants came and seized his well. Now this would not be a small matter at all. all right, so I was reading Calvin, and he pointed out that in this culture in this place, in that day, if you lose your well, you could lose your life. Right? They don't have city water that they can turn on at any point. They're near a desert in southern Israel in the land near the Philistines. And so losing a well means you could lose your life. And so Abraham's reaction here is not in a fender bender type situation. Like, oh man, I bought, we, we each like dented up our cars. No, this is a highly charged situation where his life and the life of his family could be on the line. And this is where we start to see the godliness of Abraham. Look at how he responds. And I love how he responds. It says he reproves Abimelech. So he doesn't reach for his sword to hack away at Abimelech and his servants. Right? He doesn't retaliate. Right? We got half the room here who in situations of conflict you're prone to retaliate. He doesn't slink away and ignore the conflict or disappear from the conflict or become passive-aggressive about the conflict. That's the other half of the room. And I'm on that team. Right, instead of reaching for his sword. Or avoiding, he confronts. He confronts with his words. He confronts with boldness. He confronts with gentleness. He confronts with clarity. Abraham does not run away from conflict, and he does not retaliate in conflict. No, rather, he confronts in the face of conflict. And this is exactly what life in community is supposed to look like for us and with with one another and with our neighbors. We have to know how to navigate conflict. Right? Offenses happen in our church. Offenses happen in our community on a weekly, sometimes daily basis. And my goodness, conflicts can tear churches apart. Can they not? And unless we know how to respond with wisdom and courage and with love the way our God responded to us, conflict will tear us apart and Disable us from being able to reach our neighbors with the gospel. And so Abraham charts a path here of how you confront conflict with boldness and clarity rather than retaliation or ignoring. Now, if you look at Abimelech's response, like take a look at how Abimelech responds to Abraham. Um, You have to interpret it like, is this a good person who's trying to honestly work out the situation? Or uh, is this more of a negative response, and he's actually more of a problem than it looks like? I happen to take the second opinion. I think that Abraham's response is a response to the flesh. I mean, a biblical response is a response to, the response to this situation. If you take a look at it, he doesn't take any ownership for what happens, right? In fact, he seems to cast the blame on Abraham. You didn't tell me any sooner. And even though he probably threatened all of their lives, he doesn't do anything to make amends. Does anyone else see that as problematic? The way that Abimelech responds is weak and it's human. Which highlights that the way Abraham responds is heavenly and beautiful. Take a look at how he responds to Abimelech. Instead of Casting blame, he takes initiative. He takes a step forward. And he provides sheep and oxen for Abimelech in order for the two men to make a covenant. He doesn't make excuses, he takes every step possible to make peace through a covenant. Some of you might wonder well, what is a covenant? And a covenant is just an official ceremony where two sides commit to one another in faithfulness to promote trust and relationship. Right? As we live in this world, part of being fallen, sinful creatures is that we're alienated from one another and from God because of fear and mistrust. If you can't trust people, you can't be close to people. Those who are traumatized understand that the most. Covenant is a way of overcoming hostility, overcoming alienation, to build trust and partnership and relationship. And notice who gives the animals. It's Abraham. Abraham is giving everything he can in order to create peace with this difficult neighbor of his. That's why I say his response is heavenly. Now as we listen to that, who does that remind you of? I love this story because there's such a clear picture of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Jesus is the generous one who came from heaven to seek us out when we were hostile to him. Jesus is the generous one who provided for us when we made excuses and ran away from him. Jesus is the generous one who makes a new covenant of peace with us at the cost of his own life. Jesus is like Abraham on steroids. Could have said that differently. (laughs) Right? So in Abraham, we have this beautiful picture of what Jesus is like, and Jesus goes further than Abraham ever went. He doesn't just provide the lives of his animals to create a covenant of peace. He provides his own life. Amen? Amen. And what he creates with his life, death, and resurrection is something we call the new covenant, which is a guarantee of a relationship with peace with the God whom we've offended that never ends. Can you imagine that? You never have to worry about being at odds with God if you follow Jesus and give your life to him. You can go to the grave to your death, not worrying about being at odds or being in any hostility with God. God went so far as to create a new covenant with us so that he could remove all fear of all of life and all of death because of what he's done for us. And with Jesus, it's so much better even than this relationship, right? Because what these cut animals would have symbolized. So, so basically, they cut these animals in half, and they'd walk through and to make a covenant. That sounds really gross, right? Like, it's really intense. And this, this really intense imagery would drill down the fact that this relationship is until death. We will not betray each other until death. That's what a covenant is symbolizing with the cut-apart animals. And you walk through those animals and you start to live in relationship with the other person with the hope and trust that they'll be faithful unto death. And you can't ever know. For sure, right? Because you're just hoping they keep their word. And that's, you do the ceremony and you make the commitment and then you hope that the other person is faithful but that's the best that you can do. Not so with Jesus. Not so with Jesus. When he made the new covenant with us, he already gave his life. He was already faithful unto death. He can't break a promise to you because he already gave his life to keep all his promises. You see how that works? So wherever you are in life, your job your relationships, your health, all of us are struggling to hold on to God and trust. And he's not like any person who you just hope is faithful unto death. He is the person who already was faithful unto death. You can believe in him. You can trust in him. We're just saying, faithful you are, faithful you will be. And it's the story of his life, death, and resurrection that seals that faithfulness for us so that we don't have to go through life or death with any fear that he's going to give up on us or abandon us because he won't and he can't. He already gave everything so that he can be faithful forever. And I just sincerely want to invite anyone this morning who has not yet receive that level of faithfulness, who has not yet had your hostility between you and God removed because of the sin we all committed, to receive it from Jesus right now and to become his follower. Don't leave this room without making peace with him. He wants to make peace with you. He went to every length so that you could live in peace with him forever. That's basically what his life is about. So don't leave without coming to him. Please. Now, as the story keeps going, we're going to keep seeing these beautiful pictures of how Abraham shows us what Jesus is like in the ways that he treats Abimelech. Verse 28, Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me. That I dug this well. So, as this story goes on, we keep seeing more and more evidences of Abraham's generosity. Basically, what's happened is he's been on a journey throughout his life, throughout Canaan, where he keeps encountering and being in a relationship with a radically generous God. Now, what happens? When you live in a relationship with a radically generous God for years and years and years and years, what happens is you become radically generous. And so what he's going to do here is that he's going to offer up seven additional ewe lambs as an additional witness to this covenant. I had no idea what an ewe lamb was when I was reading this. Ewe lamb is a female lamb, and later on, An ewe lamb would be a ritually pure animal that God's people can make a sacrifice for to God. And that's essentially what Abraham is doing. He's sacrificing of himself with these seven lambs in order to make peace. And the number of seven right? The number of seven is the number of Eden. It brings us back to the seven days of creation and the perfect abundance God made for the world. This gift of seven lambs is testifying to a perfectly abundant God. And it grabs Abimelech's attention. He's like, what is the meaning of this? What is the witness of these lambs? What are they for? And Abraham's saying, this is to clarify that we are at peace, Abimelech. This is to clarify that I am not here to take your stuff. I am not here to be in competition with you. Abimelech probably lived around all sorts of people who were in competition with him. Abraham saying, I'm not in competition for you. You can trust me. We are at peace. He's going to every length to show his neighbor that he is treating him with love and respect and he is trustworthy. A lot of us have neighbors that are difficult to relate to and right and i feel this more than ever that it's difficult to win people's trust i don't know if you feel that as you're trying to minister to people that it's difficult to win people's trust and the way that abraham wins it wins abimelech's trust is through sacrificial generosity sacrificial generosity is how he overcomes the hostility and the alienation between them and brings them together with this additional witness to this covenant of peace that they can live in tranquility together Now, finally, finally, Abraham is living as an image of God. We go back to the last story with Abimelech. He deceived Abimelech. Abimelech took his wife. It created confusion. It created distrust. It created curse. When Abraham was not walking with God in faithfulness, when Abraham was walking in disbelief, he was a curse to the nations. But God raised up Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. And when Abraham walks in faithfulness, when Abraham walks in trust, all of a sudden he starts to be a blessing who brings clarity, who brings peace, who brings tranquility to his life and those lives around him like Abimelech. So the more we repent and the more we believe the gospel, the more we become an increasing blessing to the nations and to our neighbors and to all those who live around us. And then we reach the end of our story. Verse 31. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba. Because both of them there swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, and Abraham sojourned many days in the lands of the Philistines. They named the well Beersheba. Probably means something like the well of swearing, because it says even right there, because they, both of them swore an oath. So this well becomes a testimony in time and space to the unseen God and the kind of God that he is. Right? The Bible is a story from cover to cover of the unseen God making himself seen in his people and his works and using his people and his works to point back to himself. That's what I'm supposed to be. That's what you're supposed to be. That's what all people's church is supposed to be, a pointer to the unseen God. Then Abraham celebrates his victory. He just made peace with this king. He just secured more of a home for himself and his family. He celebrates his victory by planting a tree, a tamarisk tree. Now, as you walk through Abraham's life, You'll notice that throughout his journeys and throughout his life, this guy's always living by trees. Has anyone else noticed that? He's always, the the story always goes out of its way to point out that he's living by a tree, he's living under a tree, he's living near a tree, and it seems like this is the author's nod back towards Eden. The point the author is making, that as Abraham goes on his wanderings and his journeys, Because he's living in the power and presence of God, he's more at home than anyone else. Eden represents true home, and because Abraham lives in the power and presence of God, he's already home more than anyone else. He didn't need to be a king who ruled that land. That wasn't his ultimate need. He needed to live in relationship with the God who daily met all of his needs. That's what it's like to be home in this world while we wait for Jesus to come back. That's how you're home in a world that's not your home. That's how you're in Eden when you're waiting for Jesus to return. And here as we get to the end of the story, we see that Abraham is a perfect picture for us and what it looks like to be alive in this world. He's living in a land that's not his own. He's striving for peace with people it's difficult to be at peace with. And all the while, because he's living in the presence of God, he's more at home than he ever could be. This is an image of our life together. And as we follow Jesus, the ultimate peacemaker, we become a community of peacemakers together. Right? There's a realm of peace that's unseen where God lives And there's a realm of chaos and destruction and death where we are. And what does a community of peacemakers do except bring the peace of heaven to earth? Abraham, in this little story, in this little corner of the world, thousands of years ago, was bringing the peace of heaven to earth. And that's exactly what our God has commissioned and called us to do together. Like, we have the greatest purpose right now in the world, To bring the peace of heaven to earth through the gospel. And so now, as we try to live out that purpose, as we try to follow God, we want to make sure that we're doing as what Pastor Alexander Strock says, we are waging peace. The world is waging war. Whether it's obvious or not, there's a prideful competition to get to the top. That's what waging war is, a prideful competition to get to the top. We wage peace. That means we have a humble competition to get to the bottom, to serve other people, and to lift them up to God. So the world struggles to wage war, clamoring and killing on its way to the top. We, all people's church, wage peace, and we race to the bottom to serve people because we're following Jesus. Right? Jesus is the first king in history, who didn't take up his sword to secure his throne. He let his body go to the cross. Welcome to following Jesus. We got to give up that prideful ambition. We got to give up that desire to be better, to be superior, to be recognized. We gladly sacrifice those things so Jesus can be recognized. Jesus can be glorified. Jesus can be worshiped and other people can live with him. Jesus says, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose it for my sake, you will find it. Are you ready to give your life up to follow him? To follow him to the bottom, rather than racing to the top? I think this is so important in this age, where the culture turns increasingly hostile towards Christians. We must never match their combative tone. We must never match their combative tone because our tone is the tone of the cross. I want to conclude with three really brief principles for what it looks like to wage peace in our culture. The first principle is that there is no true peace without the gospel. There is no true peace without the gospel. You might be getting along with your neighbors, your coworkers, your family and friends, but as long as there's hostility that remains between them and God because of their sin, a true peacemaker attacks that hostility with the gospel. So we wage peace by preaching the gospel to remove the hostility between sinners and God. Principle two, we wage peace by avoiding unnecessary conflicts in order to focus on the gospel. We wage peace by avoiding unnecessary conflicts to focus on the gospel. We don't need to disagree about culture. We don't need to disagree about politics with our unbelieving friends. We avoid unnecessary disagreements in order to focus on preaching the gospel. At the end of the day, you or I only have so much relational capital in a relationship with someone. They'll only hear so much from us, won't they? Why don't we use it all on the gospel? Why not? Why waste it on anything else? Principle three. Final principle, as we disagree with others about who Jesus is or anything else, as God's people, we always disagree in ways that look like the gospel, which means we never use violence. We never try to win. We're always trying to serve and bless in order to bring the other person to Jesus. Just as a quick example, right? So um, my MC, over the summer, we served one of my neighbors whose weeds had grown waist-high in her yard She's an elderly person who struggles with yard work, struggles with relationships. She finally agreed to let us come over and take care of her yard. We mowed her yard. We, we trimmed her bushes. We did a lot of stuff. And we didn't hear from her for weeks until she came over one day, a few weeks later, upset with me, with my wife, with us, that we had left a hole in her front yard, a small hole where we had dug out weed and had gone down to the roots, and she was afraid that it was going to mess up the foundation of her house, and there's all sorts of, like, just difficult things going on in that moment, and I was really hoping that this service would help win her heart, right, and build a friendship with her, and it just hadn't seemed to happen, and so in that moment, I'm being tested. I'm being tested. Am I going to disagree with her in a gospel way, or am I going to disagree with her in a worldly way? And so... I just explained to her, your house is fine, your yard is fine, and let me come over and fill in this hole, and please let us know if there's any other way we can serve you. Not how Ross Tennyson wanted to respond, but it's how I must respond because I call myself a follower of Jesus. So just encourage all of us to, whenever we disagree, to disagree in ways that look like the gospel and not like the world. we heard this morning about Abraham, who sacrifices himself to bring the peace of heaven to earth. We've heard this morning about Jesus, who did it even more than Abraham. And now we heard this morning that we get to follow Jesus in doing the exact same thing for our neighbors, family, and friends. Let's pray together.